number one, and by far this is the most important thing, is that I, I lost money in poker and I, I went through downswings. There's nothing that prepares you for that in life. You know, when you grow up and if you grow up like like I did and you went to like a school where you're very competitive at academics and, you know, you, your, your life is like more or less up and to the right. But, the, but when you get involved in gambling and you have a big downswing, uh, the emotional stress that can take on you, if you're not, if you haven't done it before, everyone has to go through that. I don't care who you are, how good your emotions are. The first time you have a downswing, you are going to have feelings you've never felt before. <laughs> and I had those. So by the time I was 21, I had had all sorts of downswings and upswings and downswings and upswings. And I had gone through that mentally. And so I felt like when I got to the real world, especially trading, I looked around a few times. I saw some kid that had better grades than me that went to a fancier school than me. I saw them going through their first downswing in their, in their whole lives when they were starting their trading career. And uh, I saw how they got really upset and really emotional. And I, you know, I, I, I remember like how I trained myself over the years in poker to handle downswings. You know, the way I typically try to handle upswings and downswings it's just trying to focus on the process. Like, is my process right? Is Am I running bad or am I playing bad? You know, too many people when they're losing money, they think they're making a strategic mistake. And too many people when they're winning money, think they're making no strategic mistakes. So yeah, I'm, you know, as a poker player, you get trained to you know, continually work on your game, work on your process, whether you're winning or losing. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 24, the character building side effect of losing. The voice you heard at the top of the show belongs to Jason Strasser. He's a co-founder and the chief investment officer of Caption Partners. He's a hedge fund guy and an options trader. But Jason's bio is especially interesting because he's among the group of people that started out gambling and then went to Wall Street. Since one premise of this podcast is that Wall Street is the biggest casino, I like to talk to people who have actually made a living in both domains. The connection between the markets and gambling is fairly obvious, but it's still worth trying to think about where the analogy is strongest and where it breaks down. People like Jason can help us answer questions like, what abilities would make you good at both, and what lessons apply to both worlds? Jason learned to play poker during the golden era of the game. The World Series of Poker was in regular rotation on ESPN, and online poker sites made it possible for 20-year-old kids to quickly become the most experienced players in the world. I got to college my freshman year, and one of the guys at Duke and I, we... This is before I even knew what multi-accounting was or if it was bad, but we opened up a party poker account. I think we both put something like 20 bucks in or 50 bucks in, I forget. And then we would just, you know, I would play it sometimes, he would play it sometimes, and we were playing like very small stakes tournaments. And we binked something for like $2,000 or whatever it was. And I took my 1000 and I left it on there and I sent him his 1000 He We went our separate ways and I that was my bankroll. And so from that point on, you know, I worked, I worked with that. And my progression in poker was, this is 2003, four, kind of, I started. And I was really, really bad. Like, at the time I won that money, I was terrible. There was a there was a home game at Duke that I was playing. And there was one guy that seemed pretty good, and he was older. And he he would give me, like, rides home from the game. I lived on East Campus, and so there's a little bit of, I didn't have a driver's license. So he would drive me home. And one day I turned to him and I said, am I any good? And he was like, your absolute shit. And I was like, okay, uh, how do I, how do I get better? <laughs> like, is there a book? And he was like, no, 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 two plus two, this website, check it out. So I went on two plus two and from 2003 until 2007, I think I made 5,000 posts on two plus two and, and zero, almost zero of them were like fucking around. They were all strategy. And I would just post hands, comment on hands, um, that was like my first real introduction to an internet community. I made a lot of lifelong friends from there. Um, it was definitely like one of the highlights of my, you know, of my like gambling life for sure is, is two plus two. And, you know, a lot of my investors that when I first started my fund came from that community. Uh, 
Then I started uh, playing online more, posting more hands online, reading online, uh, making friends. You know, we were chatting. I was chatting. I made some really good friends. Like, you know, one of the most helpful friends I had from back in those days was Alex Jacob, who is now a Jeopardy champion. So like he was a brilliant kid, way smarter than me, but we would talk about hands and Ariel Schneller and another kid that went to Yale, but it's still like, I wasn't doing that well. And then sophomore year rolled around and something just clicked for me. You know, I think, um, I think I made 15,000 in a multi-table tournament that summer, but I wasn't really like, I didn't feel like I was really getting it. And then, and then I started really, it started really clicking. And, and, um, I think it, it, at some point I had the confidence to sort of push the envelope on theory a little bit. You know, I think um, back then, you know, it's so different now, right? In poker, there's just an answer key, right? You can just basically look up the how to play a hand. Like the PO solver or whatever will just tell you how to play the hand properly. But there was obviously nothing like that back in the day. So we were pushing the theory. And, you know, all that we focused on was like player pool exploits, you know? So we would like, we would realize that, hey, if you three bet a much higher frequency than everyone else seems to be three betting, people were not responding well. You know, back then, if you three bet someone and they called you pre-flop and they didn't outflop queens, basically, uh, they would fold on the flop, you know? And it, it would be like very basic things, but people were not doing them. And so, you know, I remember I used to play like insanely wild looking poker, but it was very, very, very effective. And by my junior year, I was making like a hundred grand a month on the internet playing poker. And it was just completely insane. Um, I spent my summers in Vegas after junior year and after senior year. Jason's story sounds like a lot of success stories. It's a mix of natural talent, obsession with solving a puzzle, and a little bit of being in the right place at the right time. I think the word obsession is fair here, since posting 5,000 times on a forum dedicated to poker is not a normal thing to do. That's not what the folks at the Friday Night Home Game do. And opportunity was also an important part of the equation. I was a garbage student. Like I, I was a, I was a Duke, which is a good school. I was a double major, biomedical and electrical engineer, which was no joke of a major. But I wasn't in love with what I was studying. Duke is a great school. I'm not trying to hate on Duke. It just wasn't the right major for me. The problem with engineering school at Duke is that once you've sort of gotten past your sophomore year, um, it's very hard to switch to a major outside of engineering school. If I could go back in time, I would have studied computer science because I think that was more would have been more my passion. But yeah, so I had a major I didn't love. Uh, I was getting, you know, B's and C's basically and occasional A's. But yeah, I, w- I was hanging in there. I-, I basically did like the bare minimum to get by with a, you know, not a great GPA, but, you know, I didn't, you know, I graduated in four years. That's how I'd classify it. And yeah, my energy was really on poker. You know, I, I always give this example, but like, you know, there I used to play the heads up, sit and goes pretty big. And you know, they used to have $5,000 heads up, sit and goes, which I used to play quite frequently. And think you know this one Korean guy won the Sunday Million, and he instead of just taking his three hundred thousand and going away, he decided to just play anyone heads up sin goes. So yeah, so I would be in class, and then I would have I would I would pay people for the first one to text me when this guy logged on. So I would be in the middle of lab or a class. I get a text that this guy is on. I would just leave my class and go play this guy. So that that should give you some idea of sort of how I was how I was positioned. I very much could not think of a better environment for poker. I had a I. I, I made uh, not a mistake, but whatever. I was dating my high school girlfriend through lots of college, which was long distance. So I wasn't even chasing around girls around campus like like a lot of people were. You know, I wasn't taking school like all in on school. So I had a lot of time. You know, I, I would just like play all night sometimes and sleep all day and vice versa. And like you know, depending on who who wanted to gamble with me. And so yeah, like all that stuff. <laughs> looking back on it you know, that, that just doesn't come close to fitting into my life now. So I, it's a, it was a very unique experience and I, I really had to be there to, um, I, yeah, <laughs> it, it was a moment in time. Jason got into the game when poker strategy was undergoing a sea change in 2003, the existing poker literature was fairly stale and the prevailing theory wasn't much more complicated than just play tight. But Jason's generation upended the game with their bias towards aggression. If you open up like Skolansky's theory of poker or something like that, first of all, I will give him credit. That was ahead of its time in those days when it was written and super system as well. But if you just look at the stuff that they were saying, like it was super nitty, (laughs) you know? So a lot of people were playing way, 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 way too nitty back then. If I played the way I played back then now, it would just be like insta losing. 
the people are just so precise and balanced. And I was playing an extremely imbalanced strategy, right? Like if you looked at my strategy through a game theory perspective, like you would throw up. Um, but it was extremely effective against the player pool because of the, the way they were playing. There, there are other examples. Like, like for example, if you raise under the gun, people gave it way too much respect. Now today, maybe, you know, they give it the right amount of respect and you have to give an under the gun raise and poker respect. But I took that to an insane extreme where I was just like raising under the gun, like half the time and people, especially like late in tournaments and things like that, you know, they did not react well to it. And I would also do like insane things too. Like um, if we were like five handed at the end of a tournament and the small stack pushed all in for like two big blinds and I was in the big blind and I, and I was a chip leader, I would fold. And you know, uh, it's a massively negative chip EV decision and it pisses off everyone else at the table that's trying to ladder up. But at the time, people were so interested in laddering up that they would play way, way, way too nitty. And it was always in my interest to keep as many people in the tournament as I could if I had a big chip stack and I was bullying everyone. So yeah, it it was just a way, way different times. Like I said, like it was all just centered around player exploit. The same dynamic that made college Jason a profitable player is working against hedge fund Jason. He just doesn't have the time to put in obsessive study and practice. Also, poker has changed a lot in 15 years. The strategy questions have largely been settled by computers. Recently, I actually had a poker coach that I was paying like a couple hundred bucks an hour to go through uh, different things. It goes through ways for me. Um, I would say about six years ago, seven years ago, whenever like the solvers were really starting on the scene, I was not doing any kind of analysis with those. And I had, there were, there was a moment where I was playing and I was like, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not there. Like, I think I was playing the main event or I was just playing something and I, I was playing my crazy style and I, I just realized very quickly, I was like, okay, like this is not working like, like it used to every now and then I get the right table or right situation. And I, and I just turn it back to 2006, Jason. But um, for me, the solver's never been that good of a tool for me because I don't play much poker. So like, uh, and one of the things that I was always good at with poker, I always felt like people played too much poker and didn't analyze poker enough. And I spent a lot of time when I was like taking poker seriously, like analyzing poker. And today, the way my life is, I can take a poker lesson for an hour. I can't play online because it's broadly speaking illegal where I, where I am. So I actually end up doing like going through waves. And I, and I use, there's a, an app that a guy I used to battle with back in the day, Dom Nietzsche, uh, Dominic Nietzsche, he um, called DTO. And uh, I love that app. And I, and I sometimes tweet out sort of results from it. But that app is a lot more accessible for me because A, it just shows you a hand and asks you to play it. And it gives you all the preflop ranges. And then, yeah, I, I periodically over the years, I've subscribed to like Run It Once and uh, other sort of things like that. So yeah, I would say like, Right now, I actually feel pretty good about my game relative to where I felt in the past. I've had some like shockingly good results since I, you know, since I, uh, you know, took started my job. Like, I think I won two circuit main events, which is incredibly unlikely. Those are like, I think I've played ten or fifteen of them. I've won two, so that's pretty insane. Um, and yeah, like, I, I love I love playing poker. It's always gonna be a part of my life. It's it's helped me in so many ways beyond making money. But it, it's really hard to like fit it in your life when you have a job and you can't just fire up the internet and play two hours here. I'm really hoping I get to a point where I'm either comfortable playing on some of these sites or it's legal in my state. I'm really hoping that one day that, that, that works out for me. Jason's story is unlikely in a lot of respects. I mean, most people that deposit $25 on a poker site won't ever become profitable, let alone make hundreds of thousands of dollars. But maybe the most unlikely thing is that when he left poker to go to Wall Street, he took a big pay cut. I think not many 21-year-old kids would make that decision. So because I sort of had some money when I was younger, I I sort of came to the realization that I would probably have enough money to live a pretty good life. You know, and to me, like, you know, what's a really good life? Well, for me right now, you know, going on trips with my wife and my daughter, just eating the best sushi I can possibly find buying a $500 bottle of whiskey. If I want to, you know, I'm not, I don't spend lots of money and my hobbies are very much contained to the things I just mentioned, but yeah, like for me, yeah. Okay. I don't fly private. So yeah, if I had a lot more money, I could fly private, but 
to me, I always felt like I had enough money to do what I needed to do to live where I wanted to live at a young age. So I, I try to think big picture. I, I always try to think like, okay, yeah, maybe I make a million dollars playing poker. Maybe I'm making a hundred grand in my first job. But the only thing that's going to actually lead to a big change in my quality of life is if I figure out how to make 10 million or 50 million. You know, then then there are some things that change. The way you can save a lot of time, you can give away money to important things. I do think things change, not always for the better, but they do change that at that level. But whether I was making a hundred grand or one million, you know, I had some savings and everything like that. I just never felt like, um, yeah, I just never. To me, it was never like my quality of life wasn't going to be that different. It sounds a little ridiculous saying that, but that's how I felt. And and it's you know, I, again, with some context that I had some savings. And the thing about poker is very funny because for a long time, I looked at poker and I was like, thank God, you know, this was seemed like a race to zero. Obviously, you know, the full tilt debacle and all that stuff, UIGEA before that. And yeah, so all this stuff happened. But then again, you know, all the same guys I play poker with were also super early to crypto. And it was my fault. I screwed up crypto. Like I I knew what was going on in 2013 with Bitcoin. I just ignored it. Um, But Thankfully, those my 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 friends that were sort of in this dire, downward spiral from poker getting worse and worse and worse, but not really wanting to go take a job for hundred grand or like you know working their way up somewhere in a new career, you know, crypto kind of just showed up right at the right time for them. So like basically, no one no one's playing poker seriously anymore now. It seems like for my friend group, they're all well, mostly not, but they're you know they're all just either sitting on a bunch of crypto or managing that. So it turns out most of my most of my friends from those days. Uh, caught up very quickly in wealth and, and well exceeded me in many cases because of because of crypto. There's an interesting question as it relates to poker players specifically and gamblers generally, which is how many of the skills learned gambling will be useful in other risk domains like the markets? And then of the skills that generalize, are gamblers positioned to be uniquely good at those things? Or could pretty much anyone learn those same lessons? In short, are the skills that gamblers acquire proprietary and valuable? Because Jason has been successful in poker and in trading, he has firsthand knowledge on this question. I think it's very much overhyped when people are like, oh, they're good at poker. Yeah, like, okay, let's break down poker. You know, physical tells that's not going to help you too much in the real world, in my opinion. Okay, fine. I don't, first of all, it's something I've never been good at. You know, probability and math and game theory. You can't make the argument that like some math major at some school can't understand pot odds better. <laughs> you're going to understand pot odds better with them. You know the the mathematical concepts embedded within poker are very, um, you know, are very straightforward for like anyone that's into math or statistics. If things like pot odds and probabilities are basic and can be learned outside of gambling, then which skills are unique? Well, Jason already said that learning to lose was very important for his trading career. In poker and trading, it's not really a question of whether you'll lose. The questions are, how much will you lose, and for how long, and will you survive it? Also, poker might require some mental exercise that can be helpful. The thing about poker is you do have to organize your thoughts in certain ways, you know, especially nowadays, um, but just the way you construct ranges in poker, you know, you do have to have like pretty good memory and pretty good organization in your brain and your thoughts to sort of say, okay monotone board three bet pot out of position i i sort of know how to what my game plan is here oh we're in a heads up pot you know blind versus blind here's my range here's their range like like those are the kinds of things you have to think about with poker and you know a little bit of training with organizing your thoughts in that way can can actually be useful in different things in the real world not a lot of people have have, have sort of had as much practice like filing things away in their brain in that matter so but yeah i would consider that way more secondary than the first one which is just experience losing money. There's just no replacement for it. And I, I see it all the time. Like even in like venture capitalists, like we've had a bull market for venture capital for a long time. There are some venture capitalists that I feel like they're losing money for the first time in their lives right now. And they must, they're like 50 years old and I can see them and I'm like, Oh man, I can tell what's going on here. This guy's never lost money before. And, uh, everyone has to go through that and everyone has their own coping me- mechanisms and things to get them on track. Some people like to work out. Some people like to eat real clean. Some people like to eat worse. <laughs> I don't know. Like everyone deals with them differently. And uh, and I had already sort of gotten some reps in and, and had a good approach to downswings. There's been a 50-year bull run when it comes to the impact that computers have had on gambling and the markets. In the 60s, traders began using computers 
to do things like price options, and that trend has only grown. The same thing also happened in gambling. Computers have been used to generate game theory optimal strategies for poker, analyze casino games, and also to bet on sports. But Jason's work is in some ways a move against that trend. He knows how heavily computers are relied on, and then he looks for pockets of the market where they might not work as well. Very early on in options, I realized that the markets were normally efficient and there wasn't much edge to be had, but there were some unique situations where you could find edge. And if I had to summarize it without getting too much into the details, I always encourage people to think about what computers are good at and what you know f- trading firms that analyze lots of data are good at and what they're bad at. You know, if, if you ask a trading firm, what's the fair value on Apple's volatility tomorrow? You know, that's something that they'd be very good at pricing. You know, they, they have a lot of data on past moves on Apple. They can, they can see wh- how volatility is priced on the market, how volatility is priced on the NASDAQ, whatever. They can make a very, very, very clean market on how much Apple is going to move tomorrow on just a random day with no headlines. But if there's an upcoming event that's more one-off in nature, you know, all the data in the world is not going to help you with that. And so that's kind of how I feel where I focused early on in my career. What kinds of problems are there out there that lots of data won't help you with? And you need a human to analyze a one-off event. You know, an example is an election, right? You can have all the data in the world on all the past elections in any country, but every election, whether it's in the US or Brazil or Argentina or wherever, they have its own dynamics and you have to analyze it on a one-off basis. You know, there's a a little bit of information you can get from past data, but it's, yeah, you have to analyze it. And so I've largely focused my entire career on one-off upcoming events and really, really studying them and seeing if I can find mispriced options. I asked Jason if the Ukraine war might have been an example of the kind of one-off event that could be analyzed. He said, sort of, but not really. A lot of our work with the Ukraine war was studying fertilizers, right? Because while most industries are not affected, I don't remember the percentage, but I think like 20 or 30% of the world's fertilizer uh, comes from that part of the world. So we absolutely were like very well aware of how this might flow through. Um, the other, the other big thing from the Ukraine war that we were very, you know, studying upon is like natural gas prices in Europe. Um, obviously, Europe gets most of its natural gas from Europe. Natural gas in Europe basically went to some insane price when the war happened. And so, yeah, those are like the two things that we were studying. But to me, that's not like that's not a like that to me. Like I gave the example of an election before. You know, if you go back to when Trump won, you know, it's Trump versus Hillary. There are a whole bunch of different uh, parts of the market that really cared. So like one example would be like private prisons. So I doubt you were paying attention to this, but before the election, Hillary basically came out and said, we should get rid of private prisons. And Donald Trump basically said, we need to get rid of illegal immigration and throw them all in prisons when they come across the border. So you had these like two very opposing, uh, you know, you had these, you had this big catalyst that was analyzable coming up. And it really mattered for the private prison. So that was an example of a trade that we did that um, I can't get in the exact details of the trade, but that would be an example of the types of catalysts that we would look for where unlike the Ukraine war, which has a lot of variables that are very hard to analyze, obviously like understanding what Putin might do, the timing, blah, 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 very tricky. An election has very defined timing, much more analyzable. So yeah, I would say that with the Ukraine war, we're trying to understand if this, then what, what kind of sectors do we need to be careful in? Where could there be pockets of volatility that the market might not expect? Sure. But really, that's not sort of our bread and butter. Our bread and butter is something much more like an election where there's a, a clear thing to analyze. Jason's strategy is also reflective of a certain approach to looking for edges. If you can see a lot of competition in one area, maybe it's worth figuring out where there might not be a lot of competition. Edges aren't so much about your ability as they are about your relative ability. We have 13 people currently working with me and several of them, their full-time job is to stay on top of these events and inform me and the other traders of them. So, you know, we're just, we, we have a whole bunch of people doing research and it, it's a lot of work. And I think that's the, I think the takeaway for people should be that, you know, the, 
think about the strategies that are hard to scale and are difficult. A lot of times that's where there's more edge. You know, if you're, if you have somebody that's trading the S and P futures, for example, that scales very, very well. You can bet lots of money on S and P futures, but it's very, very competitive. There are a lot of people trading S and P futures, blah, 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 blah. And if someone is good at trading SP futures, they can really size it up and they can take they can take huge positions and whatever. So that's an example of something that scales very well, but there's likely like not tons of edge in. Whereas something like the options market, or there are other things that are smaller, you know, it's like it's like comparing like um I would say it's like comparing some of the mixed games to to no limit. You know, I think about seven or eight years ago, a bunch of my friends that were playing no limit. We're like looking around the table at the no limit table and seeing young people that were studying solvers and playing really well. And then they would look over and they would see like a seven card stud high low game with like eight people from the nursing home. And they're like, you know what? Like maybe, maybe I should play the smaller game that has <laughs> more edge in it. And, you know, I'm what I, what I, you know, what I always, I think the most applicable thing when you're looking for edge is to try to start with the, game that is smaller that's harder to scale there's less people focused on it that's where it's easier to start off getting edge so yeah so for us we divide and conquer at, at caption so we have certain people that are doing research certain people that are doing trading certain people that are doing more administrative stuff we all collaborate and um it's impossible for one person to do it so it's a team effort in the context of this podcast losing has an interesting role because under the right conditions, it can actually be valuable. Well, actually, let's back up. Because if you lose and you don't learn anything from it, then that's not valuable. It costs you something, it feels disgusting, and you get nothing in return. But if you lose and learn something, that's a different story. You paid for experience, but you didn't just throw the money away. When Jason was playing poker, the learning cycle was play a hand, go discuss the hand on 2 plus 2, figure out if he made a mistake or was just unlucky, then try again. And out of that process was born an aggressive style that was unique compared to conventional wisdom. In the market, Jason had a slightly different version of that experience. And that's how he came to the strategy that he still uses today. So my first job uh, was at Morgan Stanley when I graduated college in 2007. And really, the way I sort of started seeing these trades was I was getting beaten up by clients of Morgan Stanley that were doing these smart trades. So I think it's the same in lots of, you know, gambling or investing, you know, the best learning tool out there is just by getting destroyed by someone better than you. And so early on, early on in my career, I had a few, you know, very clear memories of somebody outworking me, outsmarting me, and just taking me to the woodshed. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I see what just happened there. Uh, I'm going to get better at this. And you know what I was doing at Morgan Stanley and what we actually do today as well in a, in a slightly different capacity is we act as market makers. And that's sort of the second way I, you know, in my career I've generated edge. You know, um, there's a lot of value in any market you're in of just providing liquidity. You know, people need to buy things, people need to sell things. And if you're able to have a, a, a clear idea of what you think things are worth, you can market make very, you know, very effectively. And so my first sort of introduction to markets was as a, as a market maker. And what I really like about market making is that you just sort of treat the market as right. And you try to capture edge around the market. Now, the markets are not always right. So as you go sort of further in line in market making, um, there's really two schools of thought. There's one that's primarily focused on what I call edge capture. So you know, I, I've read a lot about these two firms, but like Jane Street is a very well-known trading firm. You know, that firm, when they, when I've, you know, they don't give a lot of interviews, but I've, I've heard a, a couple of the people talk from there. You know, they're primarily focused on edge capture. You know, they're just saying, okay, I think this is worth $100. You know, you think it's worth $99. i am going to buy it from you. And I'm not thinking much beyond that. I have a fair value all day. I'm just going to try to capture edge versus what I think fair value is. The other way of doing sort of market making and, and trading is more of a game theory, you know, way of doing things. And that's that's what Susquehanna, another huge trading firm, you know, they they sort of go more along that direction. And that's all about, okay, yeah, I think it's worth a dollar, but that person that's paying 110, maybe, maybe they know something, maybe they don't. 
I'm going to play this like a game of poker. I'm going to see how they bought it for 110, how, you know, who, who I think they are. If I know who they are, then I know who they are. And I'm going to try to play trading with the dumb people and avoid trading with the smart people. And I'm going to be less concerned with capturing 10 cents of edge over and over again, and more concerned with playing with idiots versus playing with smart people. And I guess what makes trading interesting for me is I've always tried to mold those two things together. Uh, I want to try to understand the game theory side of things, but also really focus on edge capture and being precise on that front. So yeah, so when I started my career, it was at Morgan Stanley, and majority of our focus was on edge capture. And I saw some people coming in and they were doing trades where they clearly found inefficient markets and I was losing. So even though the markets were saying fair value was around here, they were wrong. And and so that was sort of my first introduction to trading and risk. And that, that sort of formed my entire sort of the path I went on in my career. The start of Jason's career coincided with the wildest environment that anyone can remember. Jason went to work at Morgan Stanley and watched as multiple of the bank's peers collapsed in 2008. It's sort of crazy to think about now, but Bear Stearns stock was trading for like $60 on one Monday in March, and then a week later, they would have been bankrupt if not for J.P. Morgan. Then later in September, Lehman Brothers failed during a weekend where essentially no one gave a shit about Lehman, because all anyone cared about was whether the entire system might collapse. But those conditions also created the need to trade. All the people that were trading that were my colleagues at Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers all landed on their feet. Um, you know, Lehman Brothers, that turned into Barclays. Uh, Bear Stearns was swallowed by J.P. Morgan. Merrill was swallowed up by Bank of America. So there was a cr- lot of crazy stuff happening. But like the groups that were doing what we did at those banks were, were very, very profitable. You know, 2008 was a great market for trading. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of activity. There was a lot of edge to be captured. There were a lot of people doing sort of forced trading. Say you had a trade on with Bear Stearns and you heard rumors and you're a hedge fund, you have counterparty risk. You know, the last thing you want is to deal with that. So what do you do? You call up Bear Stearns and you say, I want out. Well, that's not really a uh, situation where you're going to get an amazing price from Bear Stearns on the way out, right? So at these big banks, the trading businesses were all doing very well. Now, Morgan Stanley was interesting. So I doubt, I don't know how closely you followed, but Morgan Stanley trading business did very well. There was a guy on like the 10th floor, we were on the fifth floor, who was like trading mortgages, like prop mortgage, who blew up. I think it was Howie something, Howie Hubler or something like that. He blew up for like, I think it was like $5 billion, maybe more. So there were like little landmines going off in different parts of the banks. Morgan Stanley had a serious one. But yeah, like to me, I remember, I remember when Lehman went under, the Morgan Stanley offices in Times Square right near where Lehman was. I just remember walking on the street, looking up at it, watching the people leave with their boxes. I mean, it was just a sad day and just sad times. And a lot of people, you know, who weren't, in, you know, those banks, just because the trading businesses all survived, there was like tons and tons of layoffs. And, you know, anytime one bank swallows up another bank, there's a ton of overlap, people getting fired. So, yeah. And then I remember like within like not too long, it, it had Barclays all over it. So, yeah, it, it was crazy times. I'm very grateful I started my career there and I got to see the world blow up. I, I always tell people though, I think it did screw me up a little bit because I see some people that are that didn't go through that trading in certain ways and kind of being more aggressive and going going at it. And you know, in the last 15 years, being aggressive and going for it in markets was a lot better strategy than being conservative. And so, in some ways, I do feel like it cost me quite a bit of money because I I started my career in that market. But then again, like, you know, what we've seen this year, I'm not comparing this to 2008 in, in the least, w- much different situation with uh, lots of things. But, you know, I definitely feel like this is the kind of market where I started my career. And I, and I remember, you know, I, I learned, I learned how these, how, how things can go in this kind of market. Jason and a partner started Caption in 2012, initially with a very small amount of capital. But They've grown over the years so that today they can trade real volume. We just sort of steadily grew over the years. The way it works with raising institutional money. So most of our money today is institutional money. You know, it's very hard to get that first check from an institutional investor. It takes a lot of courage for an institution to write that first check because there is definitely, in some cases, a herd mentality with institutions. You know, they 
if there's a fund that's small, even if it's promising and you like the people running it, you know, why isn't anyone else invested in this? You know, that, that sort of chicken and the egg thing. And so I don't think my story is that different than a lot of other hedge funds, but effectively, once we got that first institutional money, it was definitely a step change up for us in terms of our of our uh, ability to raise money. And it's gotten easier over the years to raise money. So that's just how it goes, I think. I think that's just the normal the normal life cycle of a hedge fund. You know, you we sort of we sort of treated it like a tech company. So running a, a hedge fund with a few million dollars is not economical, right? But neither are some of these startup ideas. They're very uneconomical. They're burning cash for a long time as well. So we sort of treated it like, hey, let's start this fund. Let's get some data on our performance. Let's, first of all, internally, see if we're any good, if there's anything promising here. Let's make changes. Let's keep improving. Let's get more data. Then once we have that data, let's take it to investors and see if they like it. So we weren't like kidding ourselves on day one. We were just treating ourselves like, hey, we have to prove out this concept and then go raise money on the back of it. And that's what we did. And yeah, yeah, we trade today approximately 1% of volume on individual stock options. So that's not in counting like index products or ETF products, which we do not largely participate in. You know, the 1% of volume is a little bit misleading because we're like, we're like a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of trades. We just happen to be involved in the very largest trades that go through the market. So if you divide up the options market, there's, and this is like rarely talked about, but there's basically two, there's two sides of the option market. The first is the side most people are familiar with, which is the electronic trading side. So Citadel, Susquehanna, Jane Street, you know, there are others, but, you know, there's some huge trading firms that dominate uh, this field. And those guys are streaming quotes, you know, they're co-locating their servers right by, you know, the stock exchanges. They're getting very quick market data. They're show- They're doing very, very, very small trades over and over and over and over again. They're very, very good at reacting to what people are doing. So, you know, they, they adjust their, their, their quotes really, really brilliantly based on what's going on around them. That's the market most people are, are familiar with. Because when you're on Robinhood or you're on E-Trade and you go and buy 10 options or 100 options or whatever, 99.9999% of the time, there's no human looking at it. It's just you interacting with the with the, with the Citadel server, basically. The other side of the market is where all the big trades happen. The way I would think about that is like block trades. So if a, if a large hedge fund or an asset manager or whatever, if they want to trade Apple, sure, they can go ahead and trade Apple. Apple's super liquid. Anyone, pretty much anyone of any size can get on huge size. Even the only exception to that might be when Masa from SoftBank got involved in options. He he was trading some liquid names, but he was doing it in such huge size that that, that was not being done all electronically. But it, unless you're like that, that kind of a whale, uh, you can trade like the top 50 most liquid names, no problem electronically. But, you know, there's like more than 2,000, you know, stocks that have options on them, some of them, you know, very illiquid. If you want to trade reasonable size in those, uh, the electronic market makers are largely focused on the stocks that retail people are trading. You know, they're focused on, you know, Apple, they're focused on GameStop, things like that. But as you go down the liquidity spectrum, they're less and less focused on it. They're, you know, they, they're, they're, they're where the volume is. So if someone wants to trade a large amount of options in a name that's not S&P top 50 or top 100, it's usually uh, a block trade against a human counterparty. And so we are very, very active in that market. And so while 1% of the volume is sort of shocking, it's it's still a, a, a tiny, 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 minuscule fraction of the trades, but they're just the biggest trades that are happening. Part of Jason's business is market making, which means that on any given day, they could be trading options in almost any name. It just depends on the price. They're like a batter looking at pitches and trying to decide which one to swing at. So a customer goes to a broker. They say, hey, I want to buy 5,000 options in XYZ or whatever. That broker has a choice. Let's call them a broker dealer, has a choice. They can either show a price on that 5,000 and then sell all 5,000 themselves. Or they can try to find someone else to sell the 5,000. So effectively what's happening is different brokers are out there trying to find other sides of trades. They have a customer that wants to do XYZ. They need someone to do the opposite. So the way I would think about it is pretty much all day we're getting incoming pricing requests from different brokers. And sometimes we care, sometimes we don't care, you know, and we have a whole process in place for like what kind of things we're looking for, what kind of things we're trying to avoid. 
and we have a team of traders that's get you know quite experienced and looking for the right things and, and looking what to avoid. But that's what basically the way I would think about it is we're just getting pricing requests inbound from different brokers who want to trade block you know larger blocks of options, and we respond to those all day. A good part of the value of an option is driven by implied volatility. So Caption has to understand which factors could drive volatility for all of the names they might want to trade. If you've been trading energy stocks for a while, you know, there's a lot of correlation in that sector. It's a very highly correlated sector. You know, the difference between Chevron, Exxon, even like some of the small, like Devon Energy, Continental, of course, they all have different betas, but like it's pretty straightforward where the volatility is coming from in that, right? There's a commodity driving their prices. You, you, you roughly know based on their capital structure and previous price moves, you know, what to expect. So certain sectors I would say are now, of course, every, of course, these companies all have individual things going on, but for the large part, you know, the commodity type stuff does not require like tons of work ahead of time for a trade. So I would, I would sort of, we, you know, classify those as sort of lower, uh, less amount of work has to be done ahead of time in order to do those trades. Work still needs to be done, but less. The more extreme on the other side is something like biotech. So biotech has these crazy, you know, binary events that happen and a ton of work has to be done ahead of time in order to price those things. So that's the opposite side of the spectrum. So what I would say is when we are trading something, like we've we have some experience in the sector at minimum, or we've traded in the past because we do so much trading. Uh, we, you know, we, we have, a, we have experience with almost any stock someone wants to trade with us. It has been a very interesting two years because the SPAC boom, uh, or bust, whatever it's called now, the SPAC, the proliferation of SPACs led to like many, many, many hundreds, th- I mean, over a thousand companies, maybe I, I, th- I don't know the exact number, but I would guess between 500 and a thousand relatively small companies showed up. So it's been an interesting couple of years for us because there's been a lot of new stocks for us to study and get to know. Remember that because Jason started his career during a Black Swan event, he had a front row seat as all of the world's assumptions about risk got destroyed. Seeing that happen would have an impact on anyone. So Jason's approach to risk is colored by that experience. I think the thing I took away too that, I, that I've applied my whole career is that, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of different ways people risk manage portfolios. What I learned in 2008, and it's crazy, a lot of these banks, they, they quote this thing called value at risk or VAR, and they basically, it measures, I mean, I think they all do it differently, but it measures kind of a, uh, what is it, like a, a 95th percentile worst outcome for them or something like that. And I always just find that really interesting. Like risk management to me has always meant the same thing, which is that when the incredibly unlikely event happens, when the one in 10,000 event happens, how, how, how are you doing, Right. And nothing else matters that much. So, you know, when I trade my option portfolio, I am, when I'm dealing with risk management, I am hyper-focused on the incredibly unlikely outcome and what that means for me. And it sounds obvious, but I see a lot of people not treating risk like that. You know, looking at, oh, you know, this is what a normal, like a normal day, or maybe this is like a, you know, 90th or 95th or even 98th percentile outcome for us looks like. But that just always just seems silly to me, you know. And and pretty much every day I walk into the office and there's some like five standard deviation event or less likely happening against me in my portfolio. You know, company getting bought for 80% premium, option market putting that at one in three billion universes. But we all know that's not the right price for it. But it's all about, okay, that happened to me. I, I need to stay in business, right? So on the way into that trade or whatever position I have, it's all about me making sure I size and hedge things so that if that happened, it's not a like game changer for me. The reality is, no matter how important risk management is, ultimately, a fund manager is getting paid to take risk. So there has to be some plan to generate returns. What I'm trying to focus on is finding options that are, I think, mispriced, where I can get an execution price better than what I think fair value is for them. And I'm trying to do that over and over and over and over again and trying to capture edge. And of course, on top of that, I'm also trying to make sure I don't blow up. So to me, risk management doesn't mean anything if you're not capturing edge in the first place. So I see a lot of people pushing these stupid trading things on Twitter, obviously never bought anything, but I just see them. You know, they're all like, oh, this trade is, 
you know, risk one to win five. And therefore, you know, it's got good risk reward. And so it's a good trade. I mean, that's just such horse shit because anyone can like do any option trade with zero experience and set up that exact return if they wanted to. That doesn't matter. Like getting a good risk reward on a trade is completely irrelevant. All that matters is, is like, are you getting a right price compared to what the, you know, are you, are you the, are you the bookie getting a good price on the action with some VIG or are you just being, you know, crossing a spread against a fair price? And I think that it's all about edge capture. Risk management just doesn't matter. If you don't have a way of generating edge, then it doesn't matter how you risk manage. So what I try to, the way we try to approach things is let's generate a lot of edge, buying options, selling options, getting five to one, laying five to one, whatever it is. And then on top of that, we have to risk manage and make sure that the shocks are are survivable and manageable. Jason started his fund with essentially friends and family money. And then over the years has grown it to include institutional money. But managing other people's money means that if you lose some of it, you have to go tell them. And I think that would be incredibly difficult, especially because they all required some level of convincing in the first place. You had to use some of your credibility to get them to invest. Let's say I'm having a bad month. For me, my anxiety, first of all, managing other people's money is much more stressful than your own money for me. Uh, I am almost completely desensitized to making losing my own money. Um, no one's completely, but like I've had just so much practice losing my own money that it doesn't like, it's not a huge, it, it's not a big stress for me for some reason. <laughs> but you know, when it's your parents' money that's in the fund or your investors' money that like look you in the eye, say, I believe in you and write a check, that's much more stressful. So for me, I did, you know, I did have to go through uh, learning how to deal with a downswing with other people's money, just like I had to deal with, learn how to go through my own downswings with my own money, you know, when I was younger playing poker. So there was definitely a learning curve there. I think with investors, the thing that always makes me feel better is just being very transparent about what's going on. If you're, if things are going well, I have no problem saying things like, oh, you know, we're, I think we're doing a good job here. But we definitely got lucky in this spot. Or I think we played bad here. I think we could have done better investing in this spot or, we, you know, we, we made this mistake. I think radical transparency with what you're doing with investors is, is, is really important. And it, it, everyone thinks like you have to sugarcoat things for investors. Like investors are just trying to understand what the risks are with an investment. No investor that's any good thinks that they're just getting a bunch of free money as an investment. Like every investor understands that like there's pros and cons to every investing strategy. So like really what I'm just trying to do with investors is explain to them what's going on, what are things that are working, what are things that are don't working, how I'm trying to improve things. And you will always have investors that are very performance driven. And the first time you have a downswing, they'll probably pull your money out, their money out. But over time, what you're left with is are investors that have been through some ups and downs with you and that believe in you long term. And honestly, it just goes a long way, just not sugarcoating things. And so, like I said, let's say I'm having a bad month. I'll get more anxious as the month goes on. And then the minute I write my letter or tell people what's going on, I feel better. Like once I've communicated, hey, we're down this month. Here's why. Here's what I'm working on. Here's who we hired. Here's here's where we're at. I feel better about it. So I always tell people, just be really transparent with investors. Do not sugarcoat anything. Just set the parameters very clear on the way in. You know, here's what here's what can go well. Here's what can go bad. Here's how much you're risking. Uh, make sure the investors are sizing things on the way into your investment correctly. So like if you if you're running a venture fund that's highly risky, you're gonna pick five, you're gonna pick five venture investments. You're gonna put 20% in each. You should not let someone put half their money in your fund. It's not appropriate. Like, yes, this fund could be wildly positive EV, but the range of outcomes is very, very huge. So I always also like to tell people, like, make sure investors understand what you're doing. And make sure your investors are sized properly for what you're doing. The title of this episode is The Character Building Side Effect of Losing, which could seem odd, I suppose. Jason's not a loser. He went to a good school. He was successful in poker. He's been successful in the markets. He is basically a winner. But he's a winner who got there because he understood the role that losing played. And he paid attention anytime he was on the business end of gambling results. In gambling, there's a word for having a hard work, hard hat mentality, and it's grinding. Jason is a grinder. 
I think with poker and with this, I never felt like I had like tons of natural ability. Uh, it's always I've always been more of a grinder mentality. I always try to outwork people in poker when I was playing. And same with markets, I always try to outwork people. So I think to do what I do, you have to love it. You know, my day starts at roughly six in the morning. I'm reading the news for about, or research or news for about, you know, hour and a half. Then I'm, you know, getting to the office, doing more reading, talking to people. The market starts, it's like six and a half hours of pure focus. Um, it's like a six and a half hour poker session. Some days I feel like I need to pee in a cup and not go to the bathroom. That doesn't actually happen. But just to give you some idea, that's that's sort of what I'm dealing with for six and a half hours. Pretty intense. And then I typically am doing more business stuff after the close. So whether I'm interviewing or talking to investors or that kind of thing, I typically am doing that sort of after the close. And then I'm getting home and I'm eating dinner and hanging out with my family for a little bit. And then before bed, I like to read the paper for the next day. So I'm reading the Wall Street Journal. I'm reading the New York Times. I'm reading the Financial Times. You know, a lot of times at night, those guys are publishing the paper for the next day. It's not completely complete, but it's pretty close. I think to do that for your entire career like that, and also like my vacations are, I mean, my wife might complain about them. Like, it's hard for me to like completely unplug. Like there's no, there's no like pure unplug. You know, I see people that just like take two weeks and they go to the middle of nowhere and they hang out. Like I just can't do that. And so, yeah, <laughs> long story short, uh, that's, that's my life. And, and you have to really like it to do it and you have to really be competitive and you have to really want it. So yeah, again, I, I, that's been my life for 16 years. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Jason Strasser. I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can find Jason on Twitter. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us, riskofruinpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, at Hefkelly. 